Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Richard Landis will join us to discuss heaven on Earth. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, what do Karl Marx, UFOs, and Jihad have in common? They're all part of the world's long history of apocalyptic movements that, if mapped out, play out the same each time they occur. And as we have learned, the promises of these movements inevitably fail, leading many people to regard millennialism as a history of nonsense. But according to our guest today, Professor Richard Landis, apocalyptic movements need to be taken seriously. And in his new book, In Heaven on Earth, Landis introduces some of the most influential apocalyptic movements in history. Professor Richard Landis is an associate professor of history and director of the Center for Millennial Studies at Boston University. He's the author of several books and editor of The Apocalyptic Year 1000 and the Encyclopedia of Millennialism and Millennial Movements. His new book, Heaven on Earth, The Varieties of the Millennial Experience, explores this issue for a general audience. And Professor Landis, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you very much. Maybe you can give us a little overview of the millennial experience in history and the different flavors of... Sure. So uh, first, uh, what I distinguish between is apocalyptic and millennial. Apocalyptic means that you think that the great transformation is about to occur, and it also refers to the kind of scenario whereby we get from this world to the either the perfect world or the end of the world. So apocalyptic can either lead to what I call the millennium, which is perfection in this world, or it can lead to the end of the physical universe, and then the good go to heaven and the bad go to hell, at least in the religious varieties, and in the secular varieties, it's an extinction-level event, and we're done. Um, But um, So within apocalyptic, you have a, a variety of scenarios, the most important distinction being between a sort of violent or a peaceful transition. So, for instance, in the famous passage from Isaiah about they will beat their swords in the plowshares and spears and the pruning hooks. That's basically a peaceful transformation where the the aristocratic uh, weapons bearers uh, voluntarily uh, change their weapons of uh, exploitation and uh, and uh, their predatory weapons into um, tools of honest manual labor. Um, but in the more violent versions, it's the Battle of Armageddon, it's the Tribulation, um, and so on. And then within then there's also the issue of whether God does it or man does it, what I call the difference between active and passive. So in passive, for instance, the the um 
the the fundamentalists in America, the Christians who believe in rapture and tribulation, um, God brings the tribulation. It's not man-made tribulation. It's a it's a divinely uh, uh, carried out tribulation. Whereas in other scenarios, um, sort of active uh, and most of the secular movements tend to be active in this sense, like communism or Nazism. Um, then it's we are the agents of the destruction. So that's active cataclysmic and that's holy war and so on. And, you know, if you want to assign to religion, um, sort of there are lots of people, particularly atheists, who consider religion to have killed more people than anything else in the world. It's specifically this active cataclysmic millennial scenario that's contributed to that um, in ancient China, not in ancient China, in 19th century China, there was a movement called the Great Peace, which ironically ended up killing 25 to 35 million people uh, in 14 years of millennial warfare with the Qing dynasty. So um, that's the varieties of the apocalyptic, and then within millennialism there are two major differences. One is egalitarian um, and one is hierarchical. So uh, visions of a last emperor, some world conquering emperor who will come and sort of conquer the whole world and and, uh, impose peace is the top-down millennial vision. That would be Nazis again. Um, And then the opposite would be this egalitarian principle of sort of everybody's equal, holy anarchy, and so on. Uh, and that would be uh, communism, at least in its millennial scenario, is um, is uh, egalitarian, but in order to get there, you go through this violent revolution, which ends up actually not producing equality, but uh, you know, the dictatorship of the proletariat and a totalitarian society. So that's more or less the range of, and got, of course, as I mentioned, there's a difference between secular and religious. Most people think of millennialism as religious. I argue in the book that you have to understand a lot of these secular movements as millennial movements that follow the same patterns, even though they base their prophecies not, for example, on the book of Revelation, but on, in Marx's case, his, his uh, historical dialectic. It's a lot of different routes towards this ideal of perfectionism, and are there any similarities among them? And really, what do you think drives the type of millennial experiences that have existed? Well, one of the things that all millennialists or apocalyptic millennialists, that is, people who actually believe now is the time, um, uh, that they share is a kind of sense of being the chosen generation. I mean, humans have been around for hundreds of thousands of years, certainly tens of thousands of years, um, and um, somehow in our generation, in our time, and even in our place, um, the sort of cosmic resolution of history is going to happen. So I talk about Excuse me. I talk about a chosen generation. This notion that 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 uh, you know we are we are special. So one of the characteristics is we are special, and the other characteristic of apocalyptic believers is they love dramatic, real drama and transformation. I and mean, not everybody is appeal. Not everybody finds these ideas appealing. But the people who do find them appealing are people who are impatient, who want rapid, radical change. Um, some of them are willing to stay peaceful. Um, The Quakers, for example, are a good example of a a pacific millennial movement, but some of them are very violent. And my last chapter in the book is on global jihad, and that is a classic, active, cataclysmic, hierarchical 
active cataclysmic apocalyptic with a hierarchical vision of Muslims dominating uh, infidels. Within the Muslim community, it's supposed to be egalitarian, but every example that we have of it, whether it's the Taliban or Khomeini in Iran and stuff, any example that we have of an actual Sharia state is hardly egalitarian, even within the Muslim community. And certainly with things such as totalitarian millennialism, I think that this innate desire for change could be usurped by those wishing to obtain power, right? Exactly. And I have a chapter on the French Revolution, and there's a big debate amongst French historians about it. Is it, is it 1789 or is it 1793? Uh, you know, 1789 being sort of the, 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 the optimistic, transformational, um, the king is going to cooperate, we're going to legislate uh, a just society, liberty, equality, fraternity, and 1793 being the, um, the, the, the terror. And what I argue is that it's not either or. In fact, 1789 is sort of the upswing of enthusiasm, and 1793 represents the way in which those who have taken power handle their disappointment. They've legislated away the uh, aristocracy, and yet still uh, there isn't uh, uh, the, 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 the millennial kingdom as they imagined it has not happened. And they move from sort of, you know, pruning back the, the, the evil, the weeds, and allowing the, the growth of the pure society to literally carving out their idea of perfection uh, on the body social, on the body politic. So I see totalitarianism, in fact, as a particularly coercive response to the failure of um, more generous and transformational apocalyptic hopes. Do these tendencies for millennial movements wax and wane with current states of society, uh, economies? Yeah, although, you know, one of the interesting things is that uh, the, the traditional view of millennialism was that, uh, it, you know, it was the oppressed peasant, this is sort of Norman Cohn's uh, focus, is, you know, these, these peasant movements that arise when things are so miserable and so on. Uh, what we found out, and particularly I think the 1960s represents this quite well, is that sometimes when things are going well, you'll get a, a, an apocalyptic movement. I consider the 60s to be a millennial movement, 68 to be the sort of peak of it, say 68, 69 with Woodstock, and then it's already on the downhill with, uh, with Altamont the next year. Um, but that was really a product not of a society that was suffering, but a society that was actually quite uh, prosperous. In fact, it was the prosperous who pushed this sort of radical agenda. So I actually think that it's less related to conditions than it is to, I see apocalypticism as a kind of appetite. It's like, you know, after a meal you're not hungry, but then later on you're hungry again. After a wave of apocalypticism like the 60s, um, it sort of drops out, but then it comes back. There was stuff around the year 2000, we got 2012 coming up. Um, there are always people who want to get it going and will use any excuse that they find, whether it's 2012 or the threat of a comet or, or, um, or the you know the candidacy of uh, Obama that, that that sort of brings back hope, and there's this desire to spread this hope and have it become a wave, and I think that that's uh, that's that's just a, an appetite, and sometimes it's repressed, and sometimes it comes back so strong that it can't be repressed. So yeah, that would be my take. So in a sense, it's something that's really inbuilt within human nature and that any excuse will do to try and get change going. Well, it's built within human nature. 
in the sense that it is, I, I think it is built in human nature, and, and I wrote the book, uh, and I use no Jewish or Christian examples, which is normally when we think of Messianic movements, millennial movements, we think of Judaism and Christianity. I didn't do any of those, because I wanted to make the point that it's universal, but I do think that it's particularly strong in um, uh, Jewish and Christian, or say Judeo-Christian culture, and, and in the secular culture that we've developed um, as a critique of that. And I think that, um, you know, we take it so for granted, we take radical movements so for granted that we don't realize that in a place like China, you know, you may have some radical movements, but they're really marginal. Whereas radical thought and radical movements are sort of part of the dynamic of Western culture. Um, so while I think it's a universal phenomenon, I think there are some cultures that are far more given to it than others. Do you think the pace of these type of movements has changed with technological advances, information being so fluid? Absolutely. Um, one of the things we know from the printing press is that it's triggered a whole wave of apocalyptic expectation, including astronomical, astrological calculations. There was a great uh, um, uh, there's a great conjunction in 1524, which was connected to the peasant revolt of 1525. Um, Luther stuff was soaked in apocalyptic expectation. So uh, uh, Luther's uh, stuff was was deeply apocalyptic, and in some senses, uh, the, the the Protestant Reformation should be understood as a wave of apocalyptic movements. Some of which sort of you know burn themselves out, like the Anabaptists at Munster, and others of which uh, sort of landed back in normal time by establishing churches, like the Lutherans um, and the Calvinists, and uh, and other forms of Anabaptism and so on. So when we get to the Internet today, there's no question whatsoever that the Internet is feeding a whole range of apocalyptic discourse, including uh, conspiracy stuff, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, 9-11 truthers, and so on, but also a great deal of apocalyptic religiosity. Do you think it should be more suspects in a lot of these millennial movements? Do you think people are becoming more critical of them? Well, I think there's always a crowd. The question is, you know, how effective is the crowd? I'm alarmed and, and really struck by the depth of uh, the penetration of 9-11 truther stuff within both American society and European society and so on. And I think that one of the things that does is it opens people up to a conspiratorial view of the world. And the, the most dangerous apocalyptic uh, scenarios are ones that are driven by paranoia at uh, global conspiracy and the tendency of conspiracy thinking to designate the sort of evil other who's out to destroy us. Um, and so in the case of 9-11, you know, basically what people who believe 9-11 is, is, people believe 9-11 is true are essentially saying, I believe that, uh, you know, the people inside the Amer American government, uh, maybe not everybody, but the critical mass of people within the American government are actually evil. Um, and at the same time, I don't believe that the, the, you know, bin Laden represents anything serious. In fact, he was probably just an agent of the Americans. So you have a kind of, um, most conspiracy theories blame somebody else. This conspiracy theory blames us. Um, so in that sense, I think that um, 
there is a very serious lack of um, sort of critical thinking going on right now. There are whole discourses that are fed by apocalyptic desires uh, in which reason has been more or less abandoned. Um, and, and as a result, 9-11 truthers is one of them, the sort of hysterical anti-Zionism, sort of, you know, apartheid week and so on. All of that is basically a way of uh, funneling into the Western um, uh, shall we say the Western public sphere, uh, essentially an Islamic uh, apocalyptic scenario in which Israel and the Jews are the Antichrist, what they call the Dajjal. And, and it's the lack of sort of clear thinking, the lack of ability to recognize the difference between rhetorical ex exaggeration and actual um, uh, sober assessment of evidence and so on is really quite shocking. It seems like this sort of conflict between rational and irrational thought is think it can ever change, or it's just going to continue and be an ongoing cycle of, uh, of these millennial movements? Well, first of all, I do think that it's always an ongoing struggle, that every generation has to struggle with irrationality and struggle with uh, sort of uh, accepting the feedback of reality. I actually think the West has in the last 500 years, and I think printing played a very important role in this, I think the West has over time developed um, some very serious ability to think more, to, to prune back the sort of fantastic imagination. Um, now, you don't want to prune it back entirely. You don't want to kill uh, enthusiasm. You don't want to kill uh, sort of um, the millennial, I call millennialism outrageous hope. You, you don't want to kill hope. Um, but on the other hand, you need to be able to prune it back. You need not to let it uh, carry you away into believing nonsense about uh, other people um, just so that you can cling to this uh, ludicrous hope that somehow if you do this, you're going to bring about the perfect society. And I think communism is a really good example of that because what it did was it hooked on to scientific thinking. Marx said, I am not a millennialist. I am a scientist, and what we're doing is science. No, it wasn't science. It was silly stuff. You know, if you really examine the... the the uh, historical dialectic and stuff, you know, there's no explanation for how for the entire history of mankind, uh, class conflict, class warfare has been the rule, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's going to poof, vanish when the, when, the, um, when the proletariat takes over. So to, to pursue that and to believe that you are being scientific, it seems to me, reflects a kind of uh, uh, irrationality that we need to be able to control. And I'd say you see that today in um, uh, uh, global warming, for example. I'm, the last chapter in my book, I compare the fact that we have two empirically based apocalyptic prophecies in the 21st century, um, global warming and global jihad. And what's striking is that the roosters, the people who are you know, apocalyptic, uh, in one are owls uh, dismissive in the other. So somebody who believes in global warming dismisses global jihad. Somebody who believes in global jihad dismisses global warming, despite the fact that both of them are fed by our, our addiction to oil. 
Um, so there's there's clearly an irrational pattern here uh, that we need to examine. And if you speak to people who either believe in global warming or global jihad, they believe that they're speaking scientifically. I, I was speaking to somebody who believed in global warming yesterday, and they were telling me that, you know, this is all facts. And I said, no, you know, the future, we millennialists understand this, or that we students of millennialism, the future is a Rorschach test. You may base your prediction of what's going to happen on facts, but it's not facts to say that to to give an apocalyptic prophecy about what global warming is going to do to the world and and say that's not my opinion, that's fact. And so I think a lot of um, because science and because rational thinking has such a high value in our society, it ends up getting hijacked by apocalyptic discourse. So uh, how is it that we can assess these various movements, even ones which could be based in uh, scientific theories such as global warming? Well, I mean, I really think that, first of all, we have to familiarize ourselves with the phenomenon. I think that a lot of people are engaged in sort of millennial hope without realizing that that's what they're doing. Um, and they will, I mean, yesterday I was talking with somebody who was telling me, we were talking about the Arab Spring, and he said, you know, I know that it looks bad now, but, you know, that's the dialectic of history, blah, 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 but progress must win out. And I said, well, where do you get this? notion that progress must win out. Why do you believe that it has to, you know, why couldn't it be the fall of the Roman Empire? Why is it impossible for Western democracy not to win out? And and he really didn't have an answer for that. But And I think that, that the way he thinks and the way he registers things are based fundamentally on a millennial hope that he isn't even aware that he has. So the first thing I'd say is we've got to become aware of how it plays. Um, the second thing is we have to engage in a certain amount of um, uh, self-criticism. I mean, I was involved in, in 1996, we started a Center for Millennial Studies, and after our first thing, somebody came up to me and said, have you heard of Y2K? And I hadn't heard of Y2K, so he tells me about Y2K and stuff, and it fits so perfectly with so many things that I believed about the West, including the power of procrastination to create catastrophe and so on, that I, you know, basically, I wasn't running around saying Y2K is going to be a disaster, but I was saying we have to think seriously about this and, and its potential damage, and we have to think about, you know, how to behave in such a way that whether it happens or it doesn't happen, our behavior has made us stronger. So in any case, but I was drawn into this, and all the time I remember thinking, Am I drawn into this because it's really seriously a problem, or am I drawn into this because it suits my mental constructs of the world so nicely that I can't let go of it? And, you know, so after that happened, I had to sort of do some serious uh, self-criticism about the degree to which I got sucked in because I wanted to believe it. So I think we have to do some self-criticism. I think we have to be familiar with the phenomena. And I also think that we have to keep ourselves keep ourselves on committed to critical thinking and not to dumping it. There was a recent piece in the New York Times that really shocked me by uh, Stanley Fish, who's a famous, well-known postmodernist, and he writes in the New York Times, and there was this, um, you know, the, the basic uh, difference between Rush Limbaugh called some woman a slut and Ed Schultz called uh, Sarah Palin a right-wing slut. And there was much more outrage on the left about Limbaugh than there was about Schultz. And he said, you know, basically, let's get down to it. Rush Limbaugh's a bad guy. Ed Schultz is a good guy. 
it's us them i'm on our side and it's perfectly fair and if this means tribal my side right or wrong i can live with that now i think that that is an astonishingly irresponsible position to take that that what has made democracy possible what's made the west great uh what made the west a, a, a free society what's made the west a, a scientific and technologically technologically productive society is precisely this commitment sort of a, a kind of modesty to say even though i think i'm right i will always listen to other people because i might be wrong and here he's saying i don't feel like i have to listen to anybody else because i know i'm right and uh, i'm going to go after my enemies and i'm going to support my friends and it doesn't matter how badly my friends behave and it doesn't matter who my enemies are and i think that's not acceptable the public sphere should not be invaded by this kind of regressive attitude under the guise of postmodernism. So in, in the history of the millennial experience, how do you think we compare now? Have we made progress in terms of the types of movements that have existed and our responses to those movements? Yeah, I think we have made progress. I'm not sure we've made as much progress as it would be nice to have made. Uh, take 2012 as an example. December 21st, 2012 is the end of the Mayan calendar. So here you have a sort of, you could call it a secular apocalypse. I mean, the Mayans, first of all, the Mayans, there's nothing in Mayan culture that indicates that the end of their calendar is going to be an apocalyptic event. So we take the end of their calendar and then we import our apocalyptic stuff to it. Now, by and large, I don't think that this is really going to have much traction. Um, whereas in 1179, when a Muslim, Jewish, and Christian astrologers in um, Spain sent out a letter saying that in seven years there was going to be a grand conjunction and predicted all sorts of uh, uh, catastrophes, um, it really spread through both the Christian and the Muslim world. So, uh, you know, I would say we've come a, a long ways in terms of the ability of something like that to, to catch on. But I would still say we have a long way to go in learning how to deal with this stuff. And on some level, because Western society has developed this technology, uh, you know, you don't, in the year 1000, which I think was an apocalyptic year, basically, if, if it was the end of the world or at the beginning of the millennium, it was God's doing. Um, but in 2000, we're capable of destroying the world. So I think that, that basically we are permanently under the cloud of self-destruction, um, that any advanced, um, any advanced technological society is always going to have to deal with apocalyptic prophecies. In some senses, uh, global warming is another iteration of Y2K, which is a technologically induced apocalypse. And how do we deal with it? How do we anticipate it? There are always going to be technologically induced apocalyptic prophecies. And um, so we permanently have to deal with this. And I would say, uh, while we're doing much better than the Middle Ages, I'd give us a C. Well, I guess certainly room for improvement. Yeah, yeah. a gentleman's C. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, well, you were just listening to uh, Professor Richard Landis, who is an associate professor of history and director of the Center for Millennial Studies at Boston University. His new book, Heaven on Earth, The Varieties of the Millennial Experience, talks about this for a general audience. And Professor Landis, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much. 
And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.